Welcome to episode number 30 of Making Media Now, a filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Pam Tanner Ball. Pam is a filmmaker, an artist, a writer, and an activist. She's the founder and the CEO of Mystic Artists Film Productions and the co-executive producer of the Academy Award-winning documentary, Born into Brothels. Pam followed up that achievement by producing and directing a documentary called Who Does She Think She Is? That film profiled five women who were balancing motherhood along with their respective artistic calling. Pam's latest film is a documentary called To Which We Belong, and it focuses on farmers and ranchers who are improving the health of their land with regenerative practices and helping to reverse climate change. Here's the trailer. The most massive, perfect storm is bearing down upon us. We are seeing more of these extremes in climate. Flash flood, drought, flash flood, drought. But fossil fuels are by no means the only thing that is causing climate change. Industrial agriculture has been a huge source of climate change. The whole modern farm paradigm has put farmers into an arms race. Our soils are tired, they're naked, they're thirsty, and they're hungry. We now know that if we optimize the life under the ground, we'll optimize life above ground. Our degradation of soil is more serious than all the wars ever fought. It wasn't my goal to work with the environmentalists. I thought that was crazy. We have to go back to 400 years ago where these were grasslands. This whole idea that the environment and the economy are at odds is not true. Farmers create the carbon credits by storing carbon in the ground. Companies create demand for those. Who would have thought of such a thing? I really like it. Thank you very much. Because the approach is just the same as what our grandfathers used to do. This is a train that's just not going to stop rolling. Last year, we made over $100,000 selling carbon credits. If you farm 5% of U.S. waters, you can sequester 135 million tons of carbon. And there's something just really freeing about knowing I'm building something for the future. Are we going to fall victim to industrial agriculture? Or we can innovate, we can build something completely new, something creative and beautiful. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And as always, if you're enjoying this podcast, 
I encourage you to please leave a review, subscribe, and let others know about it. And now on to my conversation with Pam Tanner Ball. Hello, Pam Tanner Ball. Welcome to Making Media Now. Thank you, Michael. I'm uh, glad to be here. Pam is the co-director of a uh, fantastic new documentary called To Which We Belong. Pam, I'm sure you've probably, you're probably able to say this in your sleep. What's your thumbnail synopsis of To Which We Belong? To Which We Belong is a film that follows both farmers and ranchers around the world who are changing the way they manage their land and their uh, farming and growing food so that they can grow more food, healthier food, at the same time as they're drawing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. You know, I had the I had the uh, pleasure of watching the film recently, and I have to say it's it's unique in the genre, I thought, in the sense that you come away from this movie feeling informed and enlightened and hopeful and encouraged around the possibility of innovation. There's there's a lot of films in this genre, I think, understandably, where the viewer can come away thinking that all is all is bleak and, you know, you don't sugarcoat anything in the film. And I think that there's a wonderful blend of human stories and hard science that is um, really engagingly and accessibly illustrated through animation and illustration. So you really did thread that needle. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. That was uh, my intention. I uh, personally uh, have seen plenty of climate change films and what, what I've I'm left with often is despair. Exactly. Uh, it just looks like too big of an issue to, to deal with. So I wanted to uh, change that up. You know, there's a, um, a person in the film who, who says something, I, I believe it was uh, Alan Savory, if, if I got the name right. He says, we're not condemning anybody and we have to get beyond conflicts, which, you know, I just thought was that was just such a perfect synopsis of one of the reasons that your film works so well, because <laughs> you're not the, the film does not come out and paint good guys and bad guys. In fact, many of the, I believe it's what, eight or nine sort of different stories that are being told. And these are farmers and ranchers. And there's a, a, a brilliantly uh, ingenious fisherman. Uh, these are stories that are being told uh, all over the American West, the American Midwest, the East Coast of the United States, and in Africa. All of these people, they want to still make a living. They are not saying capitalism bad, environmentalism good, and their stories in the film does not uh, present a false choice where it has to be one or the other. In fact, what comes across really clearly is that it has to be both. Thanks for noticing that, Michael. That was really our our biggest uh, intention. And uh Personally, I think that we make these false choices quite often. I'll tell you something. When you do that, it's us versus them. It's good versus evil. And in in storytelling, 
that is what we're used to. That's what we are uh, as human beings. We look for that. We look for the good guys and the bad guys. It is a different kind of storytelling where we're showing that there's not good and not bad. People are, for the most part, well-intentioned, but it's it. We we uh, we can do we can do all things. We can find a medium place where things work. And these these farmers and ranchers, and you forgot the one in Mexico, Chihuahua Desert. That's right. Yes, I'm sorry. They are uh, intent on making their lives and the lives of their families and their grandchildren and the next generation better. They want those folks that they love to uh, continue living on the land. Right. Number one, in order to do that, they have got to find a way to uh, create a uh, living. And uh, what has been working no longer works, no longer serves them. Um, yeah, in fact, you, you mentioned the, the rancher in, in Mexico, the cattle rancher in Mexico, who uh, really goes into detail about regener- regenerative grazing. Um, and if, but he's talking to a friend of his, I, I believe the friend's name was Jesus, and essentially asking the friend, well, what what prompted him to change? And he said, uh, I changed because I was broke. there's a motivator there's it's uh, i mean and if you if you dug down into the 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 two brothers who had the three thousand acres in nebraska and started the cover crop business right i can guarantee you they would have somewhat of a similar story and i guarantee you that trey hill over in maryland who has ten thousand plus acres and had no interest whatsoever in being an environmentalist exactly until he he began to see that things were uh, getting more and more expensive and the yields were not what they used to be. So, yeah, he's the he's the guy who talks about uh, season after season. They would plant in brown soil. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, d- uh, depleted and dilapidated soil uh, because for X number of generations. Well, that's just what you did. You you eat every penny out of the soil, uh, thinking that you that, that you know, if, if, if you were to make the investment uh, in the coverings, uh, then that would take away from the yield yeah. when it was the opposite. Yeah, but we didn't know. And it's interesting because even uh, current day uh, agriculture pro, uh, programs around the country still teach uh, plowing, which is tearing up the soil in order to plant. We've been doing this for 10,000 years, plowing. And, and, and uh, what we and and keeping it, it uncovered uh, brown so you can like be more efficient. And right. boy, we're all over efficiency, aren't we? We love efficiency. The problem the problem is in what we have uncovered is that the soil is losing soil organic matter. And OK, how do you how do you reclaim it? When you when you lose soil organic matter, your soil needs more uh, fertilizer. Your crops need more herbicides, mm-hmm. need more pesticides. It happens that when the soil is very fertile and what makes it fertile? Carbon. Right. So we've lost seven. Per, our, our Great Plains in this country used to be seven percent carbon in the soil, we are now down to an average about 1%. So it, the soil is depleted. 
And, and, and once farmers and ranchers know this and they say, well, what can we do? And there's some solutions. They're all over it. Yeah. It seems like once you come at the problem with a solutions orientation, as opposed to from the, from the standpoint of ideology, Mm -hmm. people start to listen to each other. People, people start to respect innovation. And it's fascinating because, you know, we're all about innovation. Yeah. And the, it seems to me there's limitations of language that, you know, in certain mindsets, you know, if I'm, if I'm a person who wants to make a profit and I'm making a profit doing things kind of the way they are, Mm-hmm. If someone says to me, well, you got to alter what you have, the way you're doing it, and you're actually going to actually increase your profit, but you've got to perhaps make an investment in X, Y, or Z. If you come at it from the mindset that environmentalism bad, it's going to, it's going to be picking my pocket. It's going to be forcing me to make capital investments that are going to, you know, uh, not pay off in the short term. Mm-hmm. Then you lose that solution mindset what we're finding and what we uncovered in our film is that these, these are people who want solutions right. and there's no red state blue state mentality in this film. Exactly. And uh, I am, um, I have to tell you, I am from, I grew up in uh, West Virginia and kind of a, not the East coast, not the West coast. Sure. <laughs> and I was born in Texas. So probably I was primed to not have this, red state, blue state thing. Right. You know, cause I grew up in a kind of a hillbilly area Yeah, and, 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 but, but moved, you know, right. so I have a different perspective, but um, I didn't, I don't find this kind of ideological fighting. It's not serving us. Absolutely. Interesting. I don't know if this was, you know, even in your intentions at all, but another feeling I came away from watching the movie about, although it's not U.S. centric, uh, there's a feeling of patriotism in in, in the in the sort of the uh, America, the beautiful kind of patriotism, uh, you know, a, a pride in the land and the just the, the richness of the bounty, in part because it's such a beautiful film to look at. The cinematography is beautiful. The score is really beautiful. So, you know, you, you, you really hit all the nails on the head when you're planning as a filmmaker such a broad topic that can veer down the path of being incomprehensible and unwieldy very easily, not to mention the logistics of, I don't know how many dozens of locations you shot at. How did you begin? And, uh, you know, what, what was the approach that you took to make sure that all of those attributes, the accessibility, the uh, solutions orientation, the not falling, going down the path of ideology. How did you keep all that in line? This film took shape for me many years ago when we were filming in uh, for uh, uh, the last film I did, A Small Good Thing. And I followed some farmers in the Berkshires and they were talking about uh, grazing and moving the herds and pasture. And I was intrigued, but I didn't understand it. Uh, but I was intrigued. So I started reading about it. But what really for me is the beginning of a film is a, um, I had a dream and I dreamt that I was, uh, walking out here in the West in Boulder, in fact, and I couldn't breathe. It was so hot and the ground was cracked 
and I couldn't get my breath. And I woke up uh, literally not being able to breathe. And I had been reading about these farmers and ranchers who were doing this new thing. And I said, I have to make this film. These guys and these women, not just guys, but women and men, they're heroes. Right. They are changing this uh, terrible thing that I'm experiencing out here in the West. More, see, on the East Coast, maybe you don't know so much about this because, well, you get the floods and you get the hurricanes and you get the um, all of that. But New England has so far not been entirely uh, hit. Mm-hmm. But out here, yeah, I mean, aside not, from the impact on the uh, fishing populations. Well, and that's been a big story. And that's why we wanted Bren, uh, Bren uh, Smith to be in the film. He's an amazing guy. But my personal idea, the, it always starts with something very personal. I have children. I want to make sure my great, great, great grandchildren right. can experience the profound beauty that we have, the bounty that we have. And it's up to us. Right. It's up to us to take that longer perspective. And if we can do it and not um, politicize it and also not empty people's pockets, let's just put it out there very bluntly, then, oh, my gosh, how could I not make the movie? How long did it take to make this film? <laughs> well, I'm slow. Uh, I like I like to research. So I spend probably two, three years reading okay. and talking to people. And so if we're going to count that far back, it was, you know, probably. But to actually from the time we started filming, it was mm-hmm. a year between uh, filming and then another year to uh, edit. That's not crazy. You know, no, that's the, the, pretty the, good. Yeah. For, for, a, for a topic as comprehensive as this one, I would think that the, the research is actually going to serve you well to yeah. once you do get into production and you're a co-director on, Actually, on I'm, I'm, a, I'm a director. Okay. I'm, I'm the director <laughs> and Lindsay, who I've worked with forever, and she's... Uh, Amazing. Okay. Uh, she uh, is the co-director. I know that sounds funny, but um, she was producer and she still is. But and so is Paula Kirk. Yes. Uh, amazing women, both of them. But uh, she has a co-direct d- director credit because in part she I need her. She was partly my you know, I relied on her. But she also was the one who went to Kenya. Okay. And yeah. shot in the Maasai Mara. And she went to uh, Kenya and shot uh, the river uh, scenes with the little tiny farm there. Mm-hmm. And she also interviewed uh, Bren Smith. Okay. The, uh, yeah. And it's Trey Hill. Mm-hmm. And this is all partially partially due to COVID. I could. Um, she's quite a bit younger than me. And we both felt that it would be better. Sure. If, you know, I didn't travel. Um, so yeah, that's, that's smart. And it, and it's, you know, it's seamless. It's not a film that looks like there was too many cooks in the kitchen by any means. Lindsay and I have worked together. I will say it's probably been 12 years. Okay. We're very good friends. Yeah. So lucky. Yeah. Your entree into the world of documentary filmmaking, um, came as the executive producer for the Oscar winning documentary born into brothels, which, 
what am I going back 15 years now almost for that? Uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <for> <laughs> so were, 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 was this type of filmmaking something that you always gravitated toward? You, you just uh, were, were sharing that you, you like to take deep dives when it comes to research. Um, but were you, were you always drawn to the visual arts, to uh, documentary film in particular as a, as a mode of storytelling? Uh, well, I came to documentary filmmaking in a very roundabout way. In my 20s, I worked on Wall Street uh, trading a soybean meal. And uh, I worked for a company that bought and sold uh, wheat, corn, et cetera, all over the world. Uh, but my, my mission there, in my opinion, was to, to uh, feed the world. Okay. Before that, I was an English major. And I taught at Harvard in the mid nineties um, and uh, in a course that uh, was asking uh, the students to say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, interesting. We, we did it through the lens of literature books I've done. And, and there were several, uh, lots of filmmakers who came out of that course, believe it or not, because there was this kind of a let's learn from life yep. attitude. Um, my filmmaking debut was kind of, I wanted Santa Brisky, who was the director of Born into Brothels, to be in the first film that I made, uh, which was Who Does She Think She Is? Mm -hmm. So I wanted, and, and I couldn't believe her film. It was amazing. It was needed a lot of help. So I got into helping her along with Geraldine White Dreyfus. We were co executives we made it possible for them to get the film finished. And this and is born into brothels, born into brothels. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's one of the most beautiful films that will ever be told. And I like telling stories. I think it's the way people learn. I what were, learn what were some more. of the, the biggest lessons in your um, education as a filmmaker that you brought to this film um, that you had picked up in the making of your, your other two directorial efforts? A couple of things. One is to uh, get a good team. Mm -hmm. And by that, uh, I mean people who have their, uh, their skills set really solid. Um, but to also know, this is going to sound funny. I had to learn to really be in charge. Tell me what that means. I don't know. I'm used to letting everybody have their opinion and being, I'm very, uh, in nature, by nature, I'm very collaborative. Okay. Yeah. Very collaborative. I love film for that reason. It is Everyone very has a place right? and they all add something. Right. But when I say I had to learn to be in charge, I came to film Without any, uh, my, my sons told me when I made the first film I made, when I said I was going to, you don't even know how to turn on the camera, mom. What are you thinking? <laughs> and I said, be that's that a type of family may. encouragement every filmmaker needs. Oh, yeah. Be that as it may, I'm going to make this film anyway. And uh, it turns out I did. And guess what? I still don't know how to turn on the camera. <laughs> and that's where that team comes in. Exactly. I am. I am good at knowing how to build a team, but I wasn't as good until this film at knowing, nah, I'm, I'm, this is what we're doing. Right. So, you know, I didn't need somebody who'd been doing X over here to tell me how to do it. 
do you see a do you see a um, a pattern or a, a commonality in the the type of stories you want to tell? Yes, I feel very drawn to stories of individuals who are struggling and making a difference anyway. Okay, not just in their lives, but well in their lives a difference for the better but in their lives and consequently for the lives of everyone that they touch. I am, um, this is, this is the thread that runs through all of my executive producing and my directing. Um, I am in love with people who have courage and not stupid courage, like jumping out of windows, but Mm -hmm. courage to go against what everyone says is the way to do something or what everyone says will is the only thing that will work. Mm -hmm. And I like quiet courage. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. I like the people who aren't yelling and on a stage and making a big fist. I like the people who are on the ground doing the work. And I like uncovering stories of those people who are everywhere. Right. And we, As a filmmaker, I feel very, very privileged to be able to tell those stories. The the first film I made, my editor said, why don't we go get some? uh, It's about women artists Mm -hmm. who are also mothers. Mm -hmm. But the the whole ethos was let's get famous people who wants to hear about ordinary people. And I said, no. I want to get people who are enlivening their communities. They had to have art that was selling. But, and I think I made the right decision. It's a harder path. But for me, that is what lights me up. You know, people who are kind of ordinary people, but they're not ordinary. They have courage to do the right thing. And their stories, as you said, that they don't get told nearly enough. And the, uh, the sort of representative story, so to speak, do tend to be of either the through celebrity culture or if ordinary people are being so-called ordinary people are being portrayed, they're being portrayed um, almost to serve a stereotype of either, okay, here's an ordinary person. They're going to represent the downtrodden or here's an ordinary person. They're going to represent, you know, uh, the person at middle age that's filled with regret. Um, and, you know, the the wonderful thing about the stories that you're telling is, no, they're they're rejecting the status quo with a, as you said, a solutions orientation and, and more of a visionary drive. Yes. And and that's exactly right. And I think that sometimes they go and uh, sometimes these folks go unrecognized. It can sometimes take 20 years before what they're doing. And, you know, if you look at history, the great thinkers, the great uh, artists, if you will, a lot of them have not had recognition in their life. This is, you know, and we think now, oh, well, that's great for them, but we're so focused on what is right in front of us. And that's another reason it takes courage to make this kind of film. Also, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I've had to have courage. I mean, if I listen to people around me, If I had listened to my sons, if I had listened to my friends, even back in the first film days, I would never be here. Right. right. Never. I mean, 
not because I'm so great. I'm not, but because I had an idea that I wanted to do this. Yep. And all the reasons people said no, I was like, yeah, I know. I don't know. But you got to, everybody has a contribution to make. What do you want? What, what would be your ideal outcome on the part of viewers of this film? What, what type of a response are you hoping to evoke? A number of things. One is I want people to open their hearts to these passionate, courageous people who are leading the way to a new way of solving a huge problem. Mm -hmm. I want them to open their hearts. Once their hearts are open, hopefully, because these are great people, they're, uh, they're really great people. I want people to understand that they too can contribute in this, in this arena. Now, how can they contribute? They can contribute in a whole bunch of different ways. If you have, if you live in Boston, you know, you have like a fire escape, Mm -hmm. you can have 10 plants on that fire escape. Now you think, well, that's a small thing to do, but if everybody did that, we would be drawing down more carbon. It's a real simple thing. The more plants we have in urban situations, not to mention if, if you had like a plot of well, a little backyard everywhere, the more plants we have that are growing, the more carbon gets taken down from the atmosphere and gets, uh, you know, put into the soil mm-hmm. and, and the more food we can grow. So it doesn't matter where you are. If you have two acres or, or 20 feet, you can grow things and you are part of this um, supercharged photosynthesis, something that we all learned about back in school. We didn't think it really mattered that much. Right. So true. This, yeah. This is the most immediate thing that we can do as the human race to begin to change what's happening in our climate. We need to get uh, onto different kinds of um, to get different kinds of fuel. We need to uh, definitely uh, begin to use more, you know, electric cars, et cetera. All of those things need to happen. But why do I care about this? Because in the next 20 years, we can draw down an awful lot of carbon dioxide by using these methods all over the world. We can actually draw down enough so that we're not going to burn up our planet. Did you come away from this experience um, feeling more hopeful as I came away from your film feeling incrementally more hopeful? I hope it was more than incremental. (laughs) I feel when I, when I, I guess what I, I, you know what, I guess I would say that in, in, I'm curious as to your thought on this, how do you get to the point where the efforts that are illustrated in the film take on the necessary scale? Oh, yeah. Great question. They already are. So, for example, there are organizations and this is the other thing that you can do as an individual. There are organizations that are working all over the world with farmers and with ranchers, with grasslands. Grasslands, by the way, when they're grazed properly, they um, hold an an amazing amount of carbon dioxide and they hold it deep in the ground. Mm -hmm. So even if you 
you've got your cows munching, you don't, it doesn't all uh, just go back into the atmosphere. It gets down there through the roots. So there are organizations that are um, on target to, in our country, for example, the Nature Conservancy, which is a big uh, conservation group, has one, one of their targets is to have 50% of all row crop farming be regenerative in the next five years. They're nearly there and they started two years ago. Wow. So why does that matter? Because that's a, that's an awful lot of land, row crop farmers. And they're also on target to get the grasslands in our country, which make up a, I'm not going to give you the percentage, uh, but it's a large percentage to also be regenerative. Mm -hmm. And they are working with businesses who are also setting targets to not buy any cattle that aren't grass fed and grass finished. And they're ahead of their goals. They're ahead of their goals. Now that's the U S but it's, it's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. A grasslands organization called the savory Institute um, is working with, uh, I think it's like 70 different hubs around the world. And these hubs are training ranchers how to uh, grow um, grasses more regeneratively so they can, they can have, uh, more cattle. And what, you know, we talk about cattle being bad. That's, that's a thing. A lot of people have asked me and it's like the cattle aren't bad. It's how they're raised. Sure. Right. Uh, it's, it's the feedlots that are creating a demand for grain, which is, uh, the grain is being grown where the rainforest should be. Mm -hmm. There are people saying now, when we can regenerate what we're already using right. by by uh, not plowing, by covering them with cover crops, then the rainforests get to say where they are. Right. So you can also go and say and do the save the rain rainforests, folks. There are organizations up the kazoo, and it's a big big deal. It's happening. What is your uh, distribution plan for the film? Well, we just signed, well, we're not quite there yet, but we have a distributor and uh, they have a worldwide reach Mm -hmm. and they're going to try to, um, first of all, get us on the uh, big SVODs, the Netflix Mm -hmm. and the Amazons of the world. Mm -hmm. They also have, and if that doesn't work, because by the way, being a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker right now, it's kind of awful because- Say, Say why? Well, because, you know, you used to be able to have a film and if it was halfway decent, Netflix would buy it. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a given, a shoe in. Uh, Now they're saying, nope, we're not buying anything outside. We're putting our imprimatur on at the beginning. Okay. They're they're not buying. So they want to be more of a content creator than a. Exactly. uh, They think they'll have more control. Um, Same with Amazon. Mm-hmm. So need to do the same thing. So mm-hmm. suddenly this very big market is gone for independent filmmakers having said, and then there's Europe. We, we want to really reach Europe and mm-hmm. they were big in Europe too, particularly Netflix. Right. And we want to reach the far East and we want to reach Africa because our film is so, but these guys have their other strategies. They've got other platforms that are, they feel very confident about being able to sell to, uh, you know, like, I don't know what they, what they are. Um, but we'll do that. But the other thing they're doing, and we've worked with them before and they're really good is they are going to 
get into the educational market like you wouldn't believe. That to me seems like such a key component. And then the other market, when I was watching the film, the other market that kept coming to mind for me, because uh, in the realm of cable television, you know, shows about food and cooking and dwellings, because there's a correlation there is, uh, you know, they put there's such a proliferation of them. And demographically speaking, their viewers would seem to be of the innovation minds like they would they would be open to stories of innovation like they I think that there would probably be a sizable viewership of people that, you know, call themselves foodies, but they feel even better about being a foodie if they knew the the way that the cattle was raised, the way that the crops were raised. And it wasn't and it wasn't strict, uh, strictly an extraction uh, exercise. It was regenerative. And it does seem to me that there's an opportunity there to reach that audience and to blend. We're very those. excited about that audience. Yes. Yeah. And our uh, distributor, which I won't name names yet because we mm-hmm. haven't actually signed the dotted line, but they're very excited about that. Yep. They're also very excited about the, uh, as am I, uh, the holistic uh, medicine um, mm-hmm group of people. But so we feel that we're going to have a lot of almost grassroots, but they should be very, very big. And then some of the folks that I just mentioned, the Savory Institute, they're going to show this film uh, to all of their members. The Nature Conservancy has plans to do some very big targeted films for policymakers. They're really big in the policy realm in the U.S. and around the world. And so we have, because of who we've used in the film and because of the uh, science that's sound, very sound, we have these these kinds of organizations saying this will be a film that we can use to make some policy makers, not just in the U.S., but around the world, change their minds about how. And I I think that the the stories and and the way the film is put together, it's so viscerally engaging. It would make a wonderful kind of jumping off point for discussions around this and and to have, you know, to have some of the participants in the film actually engage Mm -hmm. ideally with skeptics. Yeah. Someone who, you know, who comes into (laughs) the, the, you know, the the viewing experience and the discussion experience being skeptical Mm -hmm. because there's 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 no apostle who's, um, you know, more effective than the former skeptic. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we uh, we love the uh, the folks that we chose, because if you think about it, you've got two brothers in Nebraska. They look like your normal everyday. What you would think of as conventional farmers. Right. And they're they're two of the most brilliant thinkers. Right. You'll meet. Right. So, yeah, they're and, and then they, the, 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 the family in, in Durango, oh, that, that huge family of yeah. entrepreneurs. Yes, um, <laughs> they're pretty special, aren't they? I, and I love the uh, at, at what point in the film, I don't know if it was the, the, the matriarch or the patriarch who said, you know, we raised how, how many kids did they have? Five kids, they have five kids. Yeah. yeah, five kids. We raised them on the farm. But we all we said to them all, OK, now go leave. Go leave, see the see the world, travel, figure out what's important to you. And they all came back. 
Oh, yes. All, there's one that didn't, but he oh, runs okay. a restaurant in town. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, he, well, he's benefiting from the, the labors of the others. Yeah. But they all came back with a very uh, entrepreneurial mindset. Mm-hmm. They were aware of the challenges and the changes. And it was, you know, how do we solve that problem? And there, you know, what type of a story is more inspirational than that? I don't know. I think it's I think it's great. And if there's some way that this film would also prompt somebody in the uh, cable TV area or, mm-hmm. you know, the networks to say this is going to make a great series. We have so many other stories. Absolutely. Well, we can even go back to the James Ranch. And it is exactly what I'm trying to do. These these folks who are like, well, I didn't know how to do dairy yes yes exactly one of the one of the sisters the youngest sister she's like we'd never run a restaurant you should go and taste their hamburgers to die for the best hamburgers i've ever had in my life and i happen to be a hamburger connoisseur that's a food channel series right there yes exactly (laughs) and the idea that they all work together yeah and it's not yeah. all honey and love. And no. there's a lot of, you know, there's issues. There's of issues. Of course, there would have to be. All but, those dynamics of a great story, the the human yeah. drama. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, uh, the, the, the hearing everybody out, whether you agree with them or not, banding yeah. together for the larger, for the yeah. larger cause. Right. Well, the film is To Which We Belong. And I'm speaking with the director. Pam Tannerball. And I thank you so much for your time. Um, And I do hope that you stay in touch with us because we want to be informing uh, our listeners who are FC members and non FC members when this film is out in the world, where they can see it, how they can see it. And, and as importantly, how they can engage in what we hope is an ongoing dialogue. Exactly. Both of those are so important. I wouldn't be making films if I didn't think there was a reason that people could do something or a way that people could do something to make a difference. So for listeners who are interested in learning more about the film, how they can track it and and maybe even some resources that, uh, you know, the film is going to make them aware of, where should they go? Uh, Right now we have a uh, pretty uh, great website. It's um, to which we belong dot com. And we also have an Instagram post and we have Facebook, uh, all of which are uh, to which we belong dot com. But in those areas, we are posting uh, snippets from the film, but also uh, any kind of interesting research or whatnot that comes up in this area, whether it's, you know, written or a film, uh, another film, et cetera. So we're hoping that our site and it's beginning to act this way will be a place where people can learn more and figure out where they could step in. Absolutely. And I'll make sure that all of those links are included in the program notes for this podcast episode. Pam, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate uh, speaking with you and uh, hearing more about this great film. Congratulations. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And you're very welcome. Take care.